folks. Welcome to another podcast. This is Mark Steiner, and good to have you with us. And this is our continuing series of conversations uh, with the folks from Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University, who put together the seminar on American Capitalism, their speaker series. Uh, we talked to a number of people, a number of people already, uh, in our work with Dr. Nathan Connolly, who is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at Johns Hopkins. His book, A World More Concrete, Real Estate and Remaking of Jim Crow South Florida. And uh, he in studio with us today is Dr. Rep. Rebecca Corbin, who is the Russell and Bettina Knapp Associate Professor of American Jewish History at Columbia University and is the speaker this week. And folks, welcome. Good to have you both here in the studio. Hey, thanks. Thank you for having me. So, Nathan, very quickly, just take our listeners back to this seminar and what you're trying to do here, and then we're going to jump yeah, yeah. into the conversation. Well, no, so so we, we have a group of scholars on, on campus on the history of American capitalism and the way that historians are, are grappling with the questions of economics and culture, society, politics, how these all bundle together. And so we've been really fortunate to have a couple years now of seeing some of the best work um, in this area, people who are really pushing the envelope in banking history, in history of real estate and municipal bonds. Um, Rebecca's work, which I was just introduced to actually this week, um, is very much uh, in keeping with the kind of path-breaking work that our seminar tries to really make sense of. Um, we hope that there will be more cross-fertilization between a variety of fields that will bring people who do quantitative things together with folks who are sensitive to culture. And so part of what is really exciting, I think, about this seminar is that we've got a variety of different methodologies all being shot through this question about the economic and political and cultural history of the United States and of the folks who make up the U.S. So it's really wonderful. So, Rebecca Corbin, welcome to Baltimore. Good to Thank have you, you in the studio. Thank you for having me. So let's take us backwards here. I mean, the, the, in time, obviously. Um, the, the question of immigrant banking, we actually talked about long ago, which we can get into maybe a little bit later, about how that affects the Latino community. And as I read your piece, I kept thinking about Latino banking and money changing and, and, and the rest. But take us back to this point in the 19th century uh, where this began. And because um, there's this depth in America of Jews and banking and Jews all, the, all control all the money, <laughs> right? So, um, but th- th- that, wh- who were these immigrant bank- bankers? How did they, uh, why were they here? Uh, what did they have to do with the community that was coming over? So this is a book about the lost world of immigrant banking. And it's a world, it's called banking, but it's not like banking as we know it today. It's totally, it was unregulated, unrecognized by the state. And it was immigrant entrepreneurs who realized that selling ship tickets was a way to make money. And indeed, by selling ship tickets, they did make, they arbitraged, uh, you know, buying tickets in Europe when they were lower priced, selling them higher priced in America, but they sell them on installment, which in many ways makes mass migration possible Mm -hmm. because people want to bring over their relatives, loved ones, friends. And the way they do it is by putting down, let's just say, $5 on a ticket and paying it off, but bringing over their loved one who then works while they're here. So in many ways, they are the cornerstone of mass migration before 1920. So like coyotes in the Latino world, but with less violence. So yes. So <laughs> I would say that there's there's other forms. Coyotes, I have, I've actually written a paper that compares... You know, we don't talk about the business of mass migration. Mm -hmm. So coyotes are the Mm -hmm. businessmen of this one because the state regulates it. So we have to remember before 1920, the state did not regulate migration. Namely, if you could afford a ship ticket, you could come to America. And I always like to use the image of Titanic. If you win a ship ticket in a card game, Mm -hmm. you're getting on a ship. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's important just to understand how 
businessmen used this world in which anyone could come over, but made it possible for people to come over as family units. And this is the way migration, you know, we talk a lot about chain migration now. This is the way migration worked prior to 1920 that made America what it was for the 20th century. But what you, not to digress this too deeply, but yeah. I think it's really important um, what you're describing here. We just recently heard um, the State of the Union address and the, what we're talking about is stopping illegal immigrants, undocumented. And what you said is really critically important to understand where most people in America who were white, whose families came from Europe between 1880 and 1920, came yes. in the same way yes. for all so, intents and purposes. So before 1921, we can't really talk about illegal immigration <laughs> unless you're Asian. Right. Unless you're right. Asian. Right. So um, I think it's important for us to understand that legal and illegal immigration are a creation of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. It is not part of American history forever. It is a creation of the, the post-World War I age. And before that, you know, the era before 1920 was the era in which there was free movement of people, but also of capital and ideas. And I would say the cornerstone for Amer America's greatness in the 20th century is laid in that period in which there is this free exchange of people, ideas, capital before 1920. And immigrant bankers are central to it because if we don't recognize that the mass migration of people from all over Europe, but particularly Eastern and Southern Europe, were what made America from a post-Civil War rebuilding agricultural economy into the industrial juggernaut that it became by the 20th century, which made it so dominant in the 20th century. So uh, emblematic of this immigrant banking, you read a lot about Sender Jormolowski. Yes. Right? So let's talk a bit about why he was, um, why you picked him why he became emblematic of this immigrant banking what the, and how that was defined. So I think this is an interesting when we talk about the history of American capitalism. He actually is a failed banker, mm -hmm. and failed bankers don't donate their papers to libraries. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> it's hard to write a history of failed, you know, any entrepreneurs, because they're like, they basically, I mean, the interesting thing, the Yarmolovsky family, he has six children, they all change their names. They don't want to even be identified as wow. being Yarmolovsky. So wow. you, there's no traces, but there are a host of court cases. So that's why I um, picked him, and he is actually on the front page of the Yiddish press all the time. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's another point, is that if we look at foreign language presses published in America, mm -hmm. we get a different image of what's going on in America. So that's where I found Senator Yarmolovsky, who is the undisputed... Um, he's seen as the face of honesty. Everyone says, like, he brought over millions. I'm sure it's not millions, but probably he brought over tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people by selling them ship tickets. Right. And by selling them ship tickets on installment, which in essence is he's giving them a loan to buy a ship ticket for a family member. So um, I, that's how I, I came to him. And then I was just totally enthralled by his story because it's not just that he's a very, very successful entrepreneur. He's central to the development of East European Jewish life in New York. Mm -hmm. He's the person who erects the Eldred Street Synagogue, which still to this day stands as this icon of how East European Jews have made it in America. He forms organizations that still exist today, but he has been virtually erased mm -hmm. from the narrative of Jewish life in America. So as you mentioned earlier, we talk a lot about Jewish bankers. 
no one has ever heard of Sender Yermolovsky. Right. So that's what I was trying to reclaim, someone who in his day was super famous, but not. Very much in, in, in this vein, I mean, the way that you describe Yermolovsky and his son, Meyer, right, and their relationship with these communities, the, the family reputation and the family name is so, is so critical. Yes. But in any situation where you have loans, there's always a concern about default. And I, and I had to wonder the extent to which he's building a business, and it sounds like an extraordinarily profitable business off of this loan structure around t- ship tickets. How did they deal with the possibility of people defaulting? What were the possibilities of fraud? I mean, it seems like there's so many fraud outcomes that can happen in a very unregulated, under, almost underground market like this. So that is an excellent question, and that's why court cases are my main source. Mm-hmm. So if Sender Yarmolovsky... Uh, sells you a ticket and you default, He often you often gave collateral. So there's actually an early case of someone who gave jewelry, mm. and they are suing for the jewelry back. back. Interesting. All right, because then they said it all has to do with the arbitraging. They said, oh, we paid what you said for the tickets, and he said, actually, the tickets were costing more. It's not important, but in essence, this defaulting is actually central mm. because understanding how immigrant bankers first started in a business of selling ship tickets but then move to real estate development, which in New York is crucial because the neighborhoods they develop are not our total countryside, I would say, and people don't think of Harlem as countryside, but it was in its day. Mm. And neighborhoods would not be, have been developed in the same way if it wasn't for immigrant entrepreneurs like Sender Yermolovsky. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So part of the default is they give out mortgages, and, and I write a lot about this. There are other ways that Jews can get loans, like Hebrew Free Loan Societies, but they don't loan for real estate. Right. So they don't loan, loan for, for real, real estate. estate. They loan for you to buy a sewing machine, <laughs> or they loan because your spouse is unemployed. Wow. But yeah, they yeah. don't loan for you to buy a building, or a home. Or well, Jews actually, remarkably, up through the '40s, are renters in New York. They don't feel the need to buy homes, so what they're buying is real estate for what we would call flipping, but for profit. Interesting. Remarkable. Go ahead, Anthony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, it, it's it's also I think you know a, a nice step back to think about a place like Brooklyn not being part of like New York City limits, right? For instance, um, and I, I would I would love to to have you talk exactly about this relationship between real estate and how the bank ultimately fails, the Armalovsky Bank ultimately fails, because my sense, at least from your work, is that having too much real estate is a real problem for the immigrant bank in this story. And the fact that they're invested first in the ship tickets, but then the real estate move, that that actually leads to the structural weakness of the bank and ultimately its failure. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So real estate cannot be liquidated very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that is the problem. They invest the bank assets in real estate actually in the Bronx mm-hmm. and a little bit in another bank is heavily invested in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And they can't liquidate it because one of the things that no one can control is that war breaks out in 1914. And when war breaks out, everyone who has relatives who live in the region where the war is want to send money back there. Mm. So no bank can ever withstand everyone coming on the same day, day to pull out their loans. But that's what actually uh, – their savings. So that's actually what happened. And they didn't have the money because it was invested in real estate. And they couldn't sell the real estate immediately because right. – that takes time. So that's why the <laughs> yeah. banks actually fail or close. Right. You talk about sending money back. One of the things you said early on in this piece was that it was a shocking number to me that a 1909 alone 
$300 million dollars in 1909 dollars yes. was transferred back overseas yep. by immigrants. Mm. Yes. And I think it's important to understand this is seen as a problem. <laughs> right? <laughs> the reason we know that number is because it's investigated by the Senate as a problem. But that's part of, I think that gives everyone a sense of A, how hard these immigrants were working, but mm. B, what their motivations were. Meaning, namely, they're sending money back not just to support people there, but often for people there to buy ship tickets. That this is how migration works. Someone comes, takes the risk, moves to a new place, and then sends money back, either to support elderly people who can't make it, but most often to support younger people to actually make the trip as well. Mm. So, again, I kept, I kept thinking about the parallels between the Jewish and Eastern Europeans and the European immigration to the United States and immigration from Mexico and Central America today, the same thing takes place. And I, I made a quip about violence, but it was, according to my grandparents, there was plenty of violence trying to get here to America yes. by, by the, their, their version of coyotes. Yes. Um, but but that, that we also see now this kind of, where money is being sent back to Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico by immigrants, that same kind of underground banking system exists. Yes. I would say that um, it has not... Uh, Immigrants will always find ways if the larger banking structure is not welcoming and trying to attend to their needs right. to get money back to their former homes and to find, I mean, check cashing is a main way also, how people right. get access um, to money. But I actually, you know, I, I do think, I mean, some of the things are different, but some of the things are strikingly similar in that uh, immigrants are exploited because of their desires to both remain financially connected to their former homes. Uh, I mean, it, technology has made communication a little bit easier. But just thinking about that the, the act of migration has always been very risky, whether in the early 20th century when it wasn't regulated to today. It's always it's a, people who migrate take a risk. And that's in some ways why the rhetoric now surrounding immigration I find so interesting because immigrants are very successful because they are risk taking types mm -hmm. of individuals, and that's why they are good for the economy. I don't understand how we've constructed that immigrants are not good for the economy. Mm -hmm. They're not white. Yes. <laughs> no. So that's yeah. what we should be saying. <laughs> <laughs> they're not white, but we, but we shouldn't be saying they're not good for the economy. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a, another great parallel because you've got, as you yourself pointed out, these amazing enclaves that are basically running with Yiddish newspapers. They have these institutions, right, these religious places. They have a kind of infrastructure. And I'm curious if there's anything that you see in the story of Jewish success in places like Manhattan and elsewhere that is a kind of prologue for what could be another version of a success story for other immigrant groups. In other words, is there a way for people not to be f so frightened of the so-called immigrant scourge by going back and looking at what happened in the case of Jews in the late 19th and early 20th century? So I always like to make the point that Jews and Italians were considered racially other, mm -hmm. and now they are not considered racially other. Right. And right. I foresee that happening with current migrant groups as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, we have to, I think you hit the nail on the head. There is a discussion about race and there is a discussion about migration, and that they have been now grafted one on top of the other. Mm. We have to think about where migration fits in American history and where race has fit in American history. And it's not, it sometimes overlaps, sometimes doesn't. And thinking about those issues brings me, when you're saying about, I do think that if America allows, I mean, 
there are statistics that 43% of Fortune 500 companies are owned by immigrants mm. or children of immigrants. Right, right, right. Right? So it's clear that, that the story is happening again. I don't think, I think it's rhetoric that people are, people are using scary rhetoric. It's not based in any reality or historical fact. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that disturbs me when it comes to the, the, the Jewish immigrant banking and, and what happened then uh, you quote Abraham Kahn, who is a founder editor of the Jewish Daily Forwards, the Forwards, as my yes. grandfather would say. Um, and um, and he, the, the term he used in his paper, real estate Nick, yes. which combines what's real estate and, and all right Nick, uh, all right Nick, which, which is nouveau riche, nouveau riche. So, but then you go on to kind of talk about how people invested in real estate because they had. Jews coming from Eastern Europe had no attachment to real estate because they were not allowed yes. to own land. So it meant nothing to folks here just to buy and sell and flip because there was no relationship to what that meant. But then that was combined with redlining and keeping black folks out of Harlem. Yes. So, so well, that, out of so certain parts of Harlem. Certain parts. So, so t right. talk about that complexity. So I think that this is one of you know the understanding of how Jewish immigrant entrepreneurs focus on different neighborhoods and really develop them and make them for suitable housing. But then they see them, because of this relationship, as investments. And, you know, it's very interesting if you see over time, because there's a lot of talk. Jews' relationships to African Americans is complex because they're not ever sure if they're going to be racially included. Mm. But over time, and I think Harlem is a great example, because the relationship between Jewish real estate owners and African Americans continue throughout the 20th century. Right. 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 Yeah. And I think that the key issue is that Jewish uh, owners of real estate view this as investments and African-Americans view it as that they are not providing what they need in a home. And I think that this is a, a struggle that plays out in many. It begins here, but plays out in many different cities. Mm -hmm. You know, part of what the and I, I left it out of this paper. Yeah. One of the interesting uh, points that other scholars have raised is the question is, why is the conflict always with Jewish real estate owners and African-Americans? Mm. And it has to do with Jewish real estate owners will rent to African-Americans. Right. And they might, it might not, they might not, they might be exploitative and not be providing, but other groups don't even rent to during the Great Migration when people come up. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's, it's something that really needs a lot of more attention. But it's this notion of Jews relating to real estate as investment and not thinking about how the people who live there, about neighborhood. And I think that's what's interesting, how it's neighborhood and community and thinking about that interaction. Do you want to jump in a Yeah, no, I mean, just, just to echo uh, Professor Coburn's point, I mean, I think the, the way that we tend to think about kind of interracial solidarities and tensions, really, in the 20th century, cut right through this relationship, right, yeah. these, these well, neighborhoods. I think you hit it. I think Jews see there's interracial so solidarity, but African-Americans see them as exploitative landowner, like exploitative <laughs> like landlords. Well, well, I think, I think so well, that's the issue. There, there, there are, I think, a, a number <laughs> of, of examples where you have even the same individual occupying right. both of those roles. Right? Right. So, so there's a really great you know, story in Chicago of a guy named Mark Satter that the historian Beryl Satter right. writes about, right, where there are families in um, neighborhoods in Chicago on the south side that are predominantly Jewish. They are then transitioning to African-American. Folks are holding on to those properties and then moving out. And there's a, there's a relationship between the money that's being made on the south side by renting that helps to make the north side much more affluent, but the resources aren't being dumped back in. Or, you know, we were talking earlier, Mark and I, about the fact that so many 
of the sympathetic whites in the civil rights struggle. You quoted like 70-something percent. 70% of the freedom riders in the civil rights struggle right. who were white were Jewish. Yeah. Right. right. So, so right. There, again, there, there's a kind of sense that you know, getting rid of things like Jim Crow is, is a broader part of a broader, broader project to make a more tolerant America. Right. So there's going to be kind of common cause found in those spaces as well. Um, but the, the question of Harlem um, is, is really a, a tough one because there you have a community that is seen as being vibrant and kind of owned by many of the black residents by the time you get to the 1920s, but the actual ownership itself is not predominantly African-American. And in fact, there's never a point that African-Americans own the majority of their community. So there's always a sense of, well, what does it take to make a community our own? Why are we always having to negotiate with these landlords? And there's a really great book, 1936, called The Negro as Capitalist, which we've talked about, um, that has by Abram Harris. And, he, and, and Harris is trying to remind his reader is that the complexity of real estate itself is what needs to be interrogated, not necessarily a kind of one-way predation of Jews on blacks or even black people on their own people, right? But right. that real estate as a form of investment causes landlords to want to cut corners, to not right. provide services, to think about it in ways that are only about maximizing the bottom line and the well-being of tenants always gets kind of short shrift. And so I think that having a, a look at that story about re- rental real estate is always going to be really important. Yes. And right? I think that what's interesting about the Yarmolovsky family, mm. is that, I think I spoke about in the paper, the first case I found of him is that he owns, the first homes that he gets, he owns are on the Lower East Side. So he's actually renting to Jews. Right. And it is a case of urban reform, right? So they, it, you need fire escapes on your buildings. How are you going to get a fire escape up to your fourth floor? Right. So you put it in the hallway. The fire escape falls on a two-year-old. He gets crippled. And the family is like, are you not going to pay for all the doctors? Right. And he's like, no. The subcontractor, so, right? Yeah. The subcontractor. <laughs> so it's just this interesting. Right. So it's 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 as you're saying, it's real estate as a commodity, and the people who are renting, and the person who owns does not feel he owes anything. And I think this is at the root what I was trying to say mm-hmm. is if you view a building as a total commodity, right? You're trying to think about how you can make as much money out of it and spend as little as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's so. Uh, this is. I mean, your paper opened up a lot of doors that we can't explore them all now in the yes. next 10 minutes. Yes. But just around the complexity of, of, uh, of um, African-Americans and Jewish community and that relationship of uh, Jewish racism, black anti-Semitism, the roots of it, some ancient because of Christianity, but some very material in terms of what America did and what capitalism has done. So I mean, it's a really complex question. I think most people have not dealt with it in its complexity. but. You want to see it in simplistic terms. Yes. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, though, from your work, how does what you are researching about these immigrant banks and Jews fit into the structure of 21st century capitalism? I mean, one thing that I thought at the question I was going to ask, I made there's no relationship at all to this, that Jews were not allowed in banking for the most part, in, in, in major banking until later. Well, they had their own investment had, banking. So, that's what I'm saying. So they had their own investment banking and savings and loans So and that, that people started around the country. So is there a relationship between these immigrant banks and that? And what's that relationship to capitalism at large in terms of how to find it? So that's two great questions. I would actually just say, so um, this is one chapter of my book. Mm. The last chapter of my book looks at the failure of the Bank of the United States, oh. which in 1930 is seen as causing the Great Depression. Right. It is, I say, the last chapter of Jewish immigrant banking because mm. it is not bailed out because basically the members of the New York Fed <laughs> see it as a 
what I call a Jewish immigrant bank. It's run by two East European-born Jewish immigrants. Mm -hmm. But what I have done is look through all the bankruptcy court records, wow. and what I find remarkable, and I've spoken with one of your earlier speakers, with Marissa, is you know there's oh, right. there's not a big right. African American banking. Um, there are a lot, not a little, not a lot of black banks in New York City. Right. And I find out because the Bank of the United States lets them take out loans and loans money to them. So the niche and the need. Right because they, they didn't need to found their own banks because there were banks that would cater to their needs is, is an interesting another. It's, it's I think, a multi-layered um, trying to understand the relationship, the economic relationship of urban Jews and urban African Americans mm -hmm. needs a lot more of attention because it's very complex because they're seen as giving opportunities in some ways and in other ways not. The relationship to 21st century capitalism is, I would say, that immigrants are always entrepreneurial because at their heart, they take a risk by leaving what they know and is familiar, <laughs> right. coming to a new place and trying to make it here. And therefore, we have to be thinking about that. I mean, there's different, there's rotating credit societies. There's many different forms of how uh, immigrants today get capital. And I think it's always going to keep on happening both in the normal banking system and below the banking system. And I think we have to be thinking about that, and it is not a threat to the economy. That's right. what I want to keep on saying. Mm -hmm. It is going to be an engine of growth in areas that we don't know. So, for example, Flushing, Queens is not seen as a center probably for banking, but for if you're a Chinese-American in New York or Chinese immigrant, this is the place you would go to get your money mm -hmm. or to transfer your money. Because we have to understand that's where people speak Chinese. So if you want to do a financial services, you want someone who speaks your language so you understand what they're doing. So mm -hmm. I think that that's, you know, if we want to accept that America is going to become a multilingual society, let's not even talk about the race, it will become a multilingual <laughs> society, mm -hmm. and thinking about how that impacts banking. Mm -hmm. If people want to see what the future of America should be, they can go to Queens. Yes. I don't think they would like that future. <laughs> right? Supposedly, the mayor of the city of New York, there's like 170 languages spoken in, spoken in, in Queens. Queens. Yeah. Queens alone. Yeah. In Queens wow. alone. Wow. Queens is the, the most diverse place <laughs> yes. in the United States, in yes. the planet. Wow. Yes. Wow. It's Queens. Wow. So, <laughs> That's great. So, yes. I mean, I think that this has a lot to do with, you know, we're living in a current situation that the way I talk to my students, it's, it's interesting because it's this last gasp of nativism. Well, by I mean, I don't know. I hope it's the last gasp. I don't no, by twenty thirty, <laughs> the majority of the country yeah. is not going to be what Donald Trump says the majority of the country that's is. True. Yeah, that's so true. that's what's interesting. So how is that going to play out? But this last gasp could be very a dangerous gasp. It could be. It could. I think it is already a dangerous yeah. gasp. As but I I'm just. This is, this is to me akin historically to eighteen seventy seven and the end of Reconstruction, huh. taking it back. Huh. And that's why they're very, this is a very dangerous moment we're in, I think. That's my theory anyway. Okay. I'm sticking to it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for better than the Compromise of 1877. <laughs> that's what I'm hoping for. Could more immigrants come after that? That's the thing. That's when the immigrant story actually blows up, right? right. It's, it's in the late 19th century. Right. So right. there might be room for, for positive thinking. Yes. So once again, uh, I want to thank uh, my dear friend Nathan Conley for uh, thank you. helping set these podcast conversations up with his uh, seminar on American capitalism. He and others have done Hopkins. He is a Herbert Baxter Adams Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University. His latest book, A World More Concrete, Real Estate, The Remaking of Jim Crow, South Florida. And our guest today, Dr. Rebecca Cobran, who is the Russell and Bettina Knapp Associate Professor of American Jewish History at Columbia University. Her book, Credit to the Nation, Jewish Immigrant Bankers and American Finance. Uh, Rebecca and Nathan, thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to our podcast. This program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern, Nora Belvidia. You can download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at mark at steinershow.org. We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast.